Welcome to the Extraordinary Creatives Podcast. I'm Kerry Hand, your host and creative coach. Join me each week as we delve into the journeys of creative trailblazers, aiming to inspire you to embrace your creativity and chart your own unique path. My guest today is the remarkable Rosie Gibbons, an artist who creates brilliantly playful, profound and provocative artworks. Although Rosie isn't fond of being labelled as brave, she does recount a performance from her time in art school that demonstrates the extraordinary lengths she's willing to go to to push the boundaries both for herself and her audience. She shares the experiences and ideas that shape her work, the processes she uses to make it, what she's needed to learn to navigate the art world and what she'd change about it given half a chance. So welcome, Rosie, to the Extraordinary Creatives podcast. What a pleasure to see you. Hi, Kerry. I'm not sure how uh, extraordinary I am, but I'm happy to be here. Thank you. (laughs) Oh, well, you go to extraordinary lengths to make your work. And that in itself is incredibly impressive. And I'm looking forward to revealing just some of those lengths that you go to to the audience. But firstly, I wonder if we could start with you giving us an introduction. How do you describe what you do to people? Sure. Well, I work across a bunch of mediums, but I say my base discipline performance, but I also make sculptures, videos and photographs. And they usually feature my own body. So that might be literally because I'm literally in it, or it might be through a soft sculptural zone or maybe digital avatar. Um, And the works usually have an element of absurd humour, I would say. And it's kind of this particular mindset that I use to explore various different things that I observe in society, depending on the project. But broadly, I would say I'm interested in gender performativity, sexual politics, uh, labour, consumer desire and kind of all of the overlaps in between those. I suppose it comes back to identity in a way. Yeah, and I've kind of had a different journey through learning different skills over the last five years or so. Um, which is changing the work and it's constantly evolving. Mm, we can come back to that, I think. I'm really curious about those skills. But where did when did you first start making things? Well, I mean, I suppose as a child, I was always quite creative and curious. Did a lot of um, junk modelling. I never know if that's like a normal phrase or just a phrase my family uses, junk modelling. But when you did, have you heard of it? <clears throat> I have now. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, when you just, you just get all the loo rolls leftover loo rolls and things like that and egg cartons and you make them into um, oh, yes. like crocodiles or different animals or whatever so as a child I was really creative and then I kind of came away from that a bit and I think really when I became properly like, passionate about making art was probably my A levels and I had a really um quite inspirational teacher I was having kind of a difficult time I think as you know you usually are around that age and um then I think I really found art and suddenly had this revelation that because I had I had kind of I guess I was quite academic at school and I kind of had this revelation that I could study art and have a completely different future for myself. Mm. And what, were your family creative at all? No, my parents were both doctors. Ah, okay. Yeah. And was there any expectation for you to follow their footsteps? Maybe a, a, a quiet one, but it was never spoken out loud, luckily. <laughs> okay. And are there any other br- brothers and sisters in the mix? Yeah, well, I have a... I've, I have many brothers and sisters from different um, family dynamics, but um, three brothers that I lived with, two mm. stepbrothers and one real brother. But they're not really creative. Hey, so it was when you got to A-levels that you really realised that th- that was a path that you could follow. And what kind of things were you making then? Well, my friend and I were really into music and like we did a project all about cl- sort of counterculture, which I think in hindsight was incredibly um, cheesy. Um, but I was making kind of collages with photographs yeah I'm trying to remember although actually you know what my um my final A-level artwork something that I definitely can imagine making now and I think it's actually quite good it was like a washing machine made of fabric printed with germs and then out of the washing machine drum was all of these rubber gloves which actually now I think of it feels quite relevant to my it uh, does (laughs) the rubber gloves appear a lot in your work don't they yeah whether they're on your feet or um, making some mechanical object um, do unspeakable things. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's just an easy way to make extra hands for yourself. Mm. So were there any inspiring people in your life at that time that encouraged you to carve out your own path? Certainly my art teacher and then also my best friend, Lucy and I, We, I suppose we sort of saw ourselves as the alternative ones at school and that we were going to have a, a different kind of journey or something 
I don't know, there's some, some arrogance in that, isn't there? But I think we have a bit of arrogance from the right age. Yeah, I think it's allowed as a teenager. <laughs> and also, I don't know about you, Rosie, but I mean, being a teenage woman is pretty hard. So I'm curious, you mentioned, you know, being doing your A-levels um, and having a bit of a tough time. But were there any experiences that you think inform your current obsessions? I think actually a lot of my work now comes back to that feeling of being a teenager and kind of navigating the balance between um coming into your own like sexual awareness and seeing yourself in in that way but also feeling kind of shame around sexuality so I think I was definitely trying to trying out different sort of maybe stereotypes or ideas of femininity and what they meant to me like trying on different personas in a way um so when I had I was in a relationship with a much older person at the time and I think that that was uh, quite formative in terms of maybe even my work now in terms of I was kind of trying to imagine myself as an older woman and what that an older sexualized woman what that kind of looked like to me um as a, a sort of recent child <laughs> um mm-hmm. and I think now in a lot of my work I'm interested in these ideas about sexualization and objectification you know like how how um how you're seen by by others um especially as a young woman growing up and I think that was some of those experiences yeah have definitely affected then how I thought about my own body because making work with my body it's kind of impossible not to be subjective in some way and think about how your experience of being looked at or of presenting yourself kind of affected your identity construction I suppose does that make sense it does and looking back as a as a an older woman Mm. um at what you experienced then how do you observe yourself in that role and that process I think I feel a lot of tenderness to my younger self because I think it's really difficult to navigate those things. Um, and I think I give my younger self some power in able to, being able to choose like how she saw her own desire at that time while being aware that in that situation there is some power, abusive power, and that um, it, it's, it's, it's really tricky uh, in terms of how maybe I should start, start that again. Can you ask that question again? Well, I guess thinking of yourself as an older woman and looking back at yourself and what you experienced then, um, you mentioned, you know, you were a younger person in that relationship. And so I was curious as to how you observe yourself now. I do think I feel affection towards my younger self, just trying to navigate the those things and trying to work out how I wanted to grow up and how I wanted to kind of experience desire but also being aware that there are systems that work against you in that at that age and there are abuses of power going on but I also give my younger self some um uh you know I don't want to patronize her because she thought she was in control yes I'm curious as to the role that uh humor plays in your work in shifting or addressing that power dynamic yeah back to the work I mean um I would say that humour is really important in my work. In fact, it's kind of a mindset that's brought me through most of my creative career. I think it's a way of trying to change or skew or upset the way that perhaps sexualised images are read and to change an audience's um, interpretation and reading of a certain um, uh, position I'm presenting, I suppose. But it depends on the way. I mean, maybe it's easier for us to speak through works in particular because it kind of manifests differently in each piece um but I really believe that artwork can be simultaneously like very serious about difficult things but also kind of uh, have humor and have absurdity and have kind of elements of silliness like I really think those two can exist can coincide together Mm. did you see that active in anybody's work as you were developing as an artist that really spoke to you so I went and studied after um, school. I went to um, foundation and then I went, I studied performance design and practice, which is a kind of a broad, but great course at CSM, Centre St. Martins. Um, and I got then, although I was really focused on costume and theatre design and very much in the theatre world, I did get inspired by artists, including uh, Bobby Baker, who recently just been shown at Tate Britain, which was amazing. And I actually met her, it's so good. But Bobby Baker really inspired me. And um kind of some other theatre artists like um, uh, La Rebo, for example, is a performance artist I liked. Um, and also kind of Bauhaus, Oscar Slammer, these kind of playful costume makers. Mm. I think they originally showed me, yeah, playfulness 
that could be combined with performance. And then as I kind of learned more and more and became, I guess, became an artist, I got inspired by more like people like Mika Rottenberg, like Rachel McLean, Shannon Alton, like these artists who really use caricature and and um, and humor in their works, particularly video works, I think. So you... um, in terms of like not, I mean, I guess also in terms of not art stuff, I love things like The Mighty Boosh and um, Smack the Pony and these like, comedy shows when I was a teenager. Hmm. So did you make a conscious decision to use your own body in your work at that early stage? Not really, to be honest. I So I was studying this theatre course and I was making costumes, some quite traditional. And then as I developed my work further, it became um, kind of more experimental costume. And I started making these clothes that could kind of turn people into different objects. So, for example, like you could become a shower. So there was... um like two shower heads kind of boobs um, and they were attached to tubes so that when I lifted up my arm, the, the water from the bottle that was attached to the tube would go through the shower head and it would look like a shower. They had these really high shoes that were like tiled a bathroom and then there was a shower curtain skirt and there was a, a soap dispenser um, sort of vagina bit. Um, so I made these costumes, they were really playful and they were kind of experimenting with the body. And I sort of hadn't really realised that there was maybe a performative element of them until I thought, oh, hang on, these have to be worn. I guess I'll be the person to wear them. And then um, kind of slowly my body became more and more part of it. But really, I started making objects that kind of either sat on the body or mimicked the body in some way. Mm. Uh, yes. But then as I um, decided... I basically I kind of realized that I, I went into theater food design because I thought maybe it would be a more practical choice in a way like it'd be easier to get work uh, and then I realized that actually it was very hard to get work in design anyway although I continued working in costumes for like many many years um but to be an actual designer it's very very competitive and often not very not that creative when you're starting out because you have quite people want quite realistic things often if you're yeah, you're you're working in response to somebody else's creative ideas. Yeah, so I started kind of making my own briefs. And then as that developed, I realized, oh, actually, I'm an artist, which I kind of always knew I was. Um, and then I had to conceptualize further, like why I was using my body, what my body kind of represented. And that was quite a long process, actually, of um, having to having to reconcile like the internal view of myself and the external view of myself and work out how I fitted in all of that and what um what it meant I guess also I in the beginning I wasn't really thinking about gender that much I was just using the body that I had and more and more I realized that it was uh, sort of political to do that with a small small p political and um I'm still kind of navigating with that today I suppose and as you started testing these uh costumes or um objects that you were creating to wear and putting yourself in front of an audience, what did the engagement with the audience start giving you in terms of helping you to develop your ideas further? You know what, I actually don't really think about the audience that much. And although they, it wouldn't exist without them being there, obviously they, the liveness of what makes it have some kind of charge, the fact that it's happening in real time with a real viewer. Um, the process of developing the performance is, is, is quite personal in a way. Um, but I suppose having an audience there, it made me realise that something does happen. Mm. <laughs> something what, changes. What was the first response that you got? From a performance? Yeah. I suppose people laughing <laughs> was the first response. But then in terms of a critical response, I had a very supportive tutor called Peter Bond, who's a great guy um, on my BA. And he really, really pushed me um, to make more performances. He said he really saw something in me that was... Because I was in really in two minds. I was kind of doing these experimental performances. And at the same time, I was doing like Victorian set models simultaneously. And I felt like I was in between these two things. I couldn't really decide what was the right option. He really said I had something in that more experimental area. And I, I owe him that because, well, hopefully I do. It's <laughs> that um, confidence of somebody else seeing something in you sort of helped you to back yourself and take yeah. the route that you really wanted to take. Yeah, and that continued in my master's a few years later, where um, I had three kind of really formative tutors with very different performance practices. But that was Nigel Roll, who was kind of based in quite traditional, like I think traditional, but like seventies body based, mm-hmm. kind of quite extreme in some ways um, uh, performance, quite kind of purist. So that was one approach. And then I also had um, Mel Brimfield, who I know you're a big fan of, as mm-hmm. am I, um, and Leah Capaldi, who both were kind of more playful, and Mel kind of more theatrical. 
and um, Leah, I suppose, more conceptual, let's say. Not that Mel's not, but Leah kind of, yeah, it's just a different kind of practice. And uh, so between all three of those, I kind of realised, I kind of expanded my view of what it could be. Yeah. And so as you're developing the work and you're becoming more aware of your own body and the part that that plays, what other skills did you have to learn um, from not just the practical skills, but how did you build your confidence to become more daring and take more risks in the performance? It's difficult because I just felt like the more I did, the less nervous I was. Because I studied this master's at the Royal College of Art, um, which is called Contemporary Art Performance. It doesn't exist anymore, but it was a very like, specific course. It was very small, there's hardly any students. And it was quite... Um, I suppose we kind of sort of thought of ourselves as quite separate from the rest of university and we were doing kind of strange, strange things. Um, And during that course, I just kind of pushed it to the most extreme. So I think I was like naked masturbating on a like lecture theatre in front of the university. And then, you know, after you've done that, you're like, I'm not sure if that was good art, but definitely now it's less nerve wracking for me to do something (laughs) less. (laughs) And Um, what what kind of uh, critical feedback uh supported you taking even more risks you know what I just didn't really see it as risks because I think within my work there's a real internal logic and every Mm. time I'm developing a piece I have even though it might not seem very like rational from the outside from the inside of me working on that project it just makes like logical rational sense and that will be the end result so yeah I just it just it just feels right and I just know that it's that's what the piece is and then I do it it's not a very inspiring answer, but it is. No, I think it's it's fantastic because I know every artist that I've ever worked with has their own form of logic and systems and reason and why something works and something else doesn't. But I wonder for myself and for our listeners, could you select one of the works that you made recently and walk us through the process of conceiving the idea, making it, and then delivering it so that we can understand how how you work. Yeah, good idea, because I think things can seem a bit abstract when you're just talking generally. Um, maybe I'll choose this series I made last year called Planned Obsolescence. Um, it was a multidisciplinary project, so it had outcomes that were kind of large, life-size sculptures, um, also a performance and a video and some works on paper. So essentially the I took as a starting point the idea of the kind of office worker photocopying their body parts at like the office Christmas party or something, which is a kind of outdated joke, I suppose. But for me, I kind of was interested in this insertion of something maybe unruly or um, maybe sexualized into kind of sort of corporate or uh, maybe commodified space. Um, so that was my starting point. And I was also thinking about this idea that when you're photocopying yourself, you're kind of collaborating with that printer you're almost becoming like a low-tech cyborg or like a kind of part machine, part human. So a lot of my work kind of looks to kind of the past technology to think about the future technology. So I was thinking about these ideas of like the cyborg and things through this very kind of um, mundane uh, kind of funny thing. So um, so that was my starting point. So I began by kind of uh, basically just experimenting with the photocopy in the studio. So kind of photocopy parts of myself sitting on it and eventually I, I came up with this idea to use the printer as a way to kind of look through myself. So I made a butt plug which had on it a fabric eyeball so that when I would sit on the printer, um, I also had a suit, I should say, um, which had a sort of flap up bum section. So when I sat on the printer in the performance, you could just see the, the eye, you couldn't see the eyeball until it came out of the printer. So it was kind of a surprise. I printed out these eyes and I sucked them back onto my face. So I'm kind of becoming this this kind of printed monster version of myself. Um, And um, at the same time, I was thinking about different types of printing and 3D printing. So I was wearing a suit that was made using um, photogrammetry scanned imagery. So photogrammetry is like when you take photographs of somebody or something uh, in a 360 way, sort of like um, in the Matrix when they do the bit where they pause it and then they go all the way around. Keanu, it's like that. And you get from that a, a 3D digital asset. Um, so with that asset, I also had the um, 2D fabric, <laughs> 2D um, net, which is the photograph that wrapped around that asset. So I used that net printed onto satin to make a suit of myself. So essentially, I was wearing a skin made of my a suit made of my own skin to make, put it more simply. 
And I think there was some combination there going on between the 2D printing I was doing as the kind of office character and this 3D printed outfit. So I was thinking about part technology and futures in technology. Um, and I think also for me, printers kind of represent sort of a failure of our aspirations for the future of technology because they're so kind of notoriously rubbish and they're always breaking. And, you know, if we have, we have such um, dedication and, and um, excitement about how our bodies will combine with technology in the future, yet we can't even trust the printer to print out a document. So I think for me, there was an absurdity to that as well. Um, and so the um, sculptures kind of took that further with bodies kind of going in and out of these printers and um, uh, becoming kind of sort of strange half machine, half body future things. Um, but so maybe Rosie, how, how would you start the development of that idea? <laughs> so, you know, are you in the bath going for a walk? in the studio where do those ideas come to you and what form do they come to you oh it's such a mystery because it just depends um often they honestly do just come to me like when I'm sleeping um but that one started because I had the idea that you could go through a printer and then become flat that was my first thought like flat Stanley like just like flat Stanley exactly like flat Stanley and so I had an idea for a sculpture where a 3D body would become a 2D body. And that was my first starting point. Mm. Um, and then I kind of expanded the world further um, and combined it with stuff that my work is kind of always about as well in terms of like slightly sexualized bodies or trying to kind of make strange or absurd um, a position that might seem erotic. So for example, the that printer that I just spoke about, the Flat Stanley um, sculpture is kind of in quite a, the, the, the back is arched and the bum is up and the head is down um, and you, you approach it from the back. So you see just kind of the bum, but I replaced the bum with these two big eyes that are kind of looking back at the audience. So there's always this confrontation going on, I would like to think in the work mm. where somehow this, either myself or the sculptures I've made have a way to kind of look back and confront the viewer and kind of reject maybe a, a passive uh, position or like an objectifying gaze, I would say. Um, so anyway, that was a long, that was a long answer, but yeah, essentially, I developed this whole world for myself. So that world that I made is like the world of these machines, these these printer bodies combining. It's sort of in an office situation, but it's also sort of on TV or in the future and the past at the same time. And so are you um, playing with materials in a studio or in, do you write in a sketchbook? Or I'm curious in terms of how you start unpacking the idea before you get into a space to do the performance or do you unpack everything in a space like I know some performance artists who do make very very context specific work where they're responding or riffing to off the the space itself yes I mean I'm, I'm quite um regimented in the performances I have quite strict rules for myself and then and there's also a quite a lot of kind of neatness and poise at the beginning of the performance that I do. And then that kind of slowly becomes broken down through the performance and the order I've set up slowly becomes broken down because of the rules I've set for myself. Um, but I have a lot of objects in my studio and I, I'm constantly accumulating more. I spend quite a lot of time just kind of staring at them or taping them onto myself or trying to use them in different ways or making kind of collages with them, sort of like art attack style collages. Um, and I think that's a good way of developing ideas. And I do also draw quite regularly in a sketchbook. So you're um, kind of feeling your way through the materials to see what they might offer. But you're also putting things into relationship with each other to see what meaning they might produce, testing and trialing things in that way. Yeah, I would say so. And then I often would build a kind of more research based overarching theme as well for a series um kind of building building a world so and maybe another good example is this project I did called the new me which is a video project actually multidisciplinary but mainly video and and in that world I built over a year I kind of developed a fictional corporation and that became that kind of structure with which I could then play and give meaning to all of the random objects I was choosing um, I should say, actually, I think that this idea of product demonstration is like quite important. So the work I make as well, I kind of always see myself as like demonstrating different um, items, whether found or, or made. And I'm kind of like a puppeteer of some kind. I guess the difference being that you like to push things to the edge of reason 
<laughs> in that um in a way it's not you're not selling us something in a sense you're asking us a question as to um what does it mean to us well i my catchphrase is kind of taking taking sex sales like too literally yeah to the to the point where it becomes uh kind of obtuse or um too too much <laughs> have you ever made a performance that you thought afterwards yeah no that wasn't right yeah loads especially when I was studying now I'm a bit more I do I do less performances and I give them more thoughts but um when I was studying my master's we used to do performances like every week so you just had to think something to do and um I was kind of playing with the dynamic a little bit between audience and performer and there were some things I did which I felt like I didn't have the control in the situation which I know for some artists is the point but for me I always want to have the control and and so when I felt like that was basically when I when I I've got to have the last laugh yeah got you is there a situation that you've been put in by the art world as it were like an invitation or a, an extension to perform where the context wasn't quite right for you but you had to make work yeah quite a few times and I've I've learned now much more that you can ask for what you need um because I think when you start out you're just so grateful for anything <laughs> the opportunity yeah. that you'll have of course of course um but I've also learned that I'm responsible for myself it's my decision my it's in my control to make the circumstance right but I also think I was quite naive when I was a bit younger so I, I did a lot of performances like outdoors like on the streets which were quite explicit and obviously I got some like unpleasant reactions from people on the street and I think that was kind of amazing in some way like it, it the work the work was really charged and I think mm. for the for the viewer it was um you know they felt really conflicted which you know I can imagine would have been quite uh you know feel quite intense but it also felt quite intense for me and not necessarily in a good way um so yeah navigating but you also don't want to be elitist in terms of who your audience should be mm. so it's a it's a balance by that you mean breaking out of the gallery space into the public realm and into places where people aren't necessarily expecting uh, what I'm going to do <laughs> is it in those moments are you really testing what you're made of testing your own metal mm-hmm. not on purpose but maybe it, it seems like you you want to do that because you return to it and I'm I'm curious as to um like a what, well, I'm curious as to what kind of feelings it evokes. Like when you're performing and it's really flirting with danger in that way, you know, or whether it's whether the anticipation, I know you prepare a lot more now, but nevertheless, it, it strikes me that your work is always on this knife edge of, you know, that actually is it enough or too much or could it flip you know, could it could it turn into something? So it's it's flirting on that side side of uh, um, I don't know, positive and negative and good and evil and fear and desire. There's it's the it's about that being on that tension that um that sort of knife side of tension, and that takes some exquisite mastery to get right so that you do maintain control. I've just learned it more over time and I think I'm I'm not going out to put myself in a difficult situation I'm doing I'm doing it for the work and you know I'm very rigorous in terms of the, the reason I'm doing it um and I've thought about it a lot so like I, I like danger is not you know a lot of performance artists like this idea of kind of danger and risk is very much at the heart of what they're doing and for me it's not it's much more no. about creating imagery images presenting uh-huh. images to it to an audience and asking them to reconcile with that image and hopefully have kind of conflicting feelings, hopefully of kind of both maybe unsettled yet um, amused or making some kind of reflection on. If you love to travel like me and you understand the power in escaping the money for time exchange trap, but you just don't know how to do it, then building an Airbnb consultancy business could be exactly what you have been looking for. Right now in the UK, 
there is a completely untapped opportunity through helping struggling Airbnb hosts by turning around their underperforming properties and generating you huge commission payments in the process. We are going to teach you all of the tools and all of the techniques that we've learned over the last five years through building our very own multiple six-figure Airbnb business, arming you with everything that you need to swoop in and save the day. Minimal startup costs, zero risk, and almost unlimited potential. Sound good? Welcome to the Airbnb Consultant. Contact us through any of the channels included in the studio notes to get the conversation started. whatever I'm talking about in that piece in relation to their own lives but I don't know I just I really prickle at like any thought that it's like brave to do performance art it's really just like a, a um it's just a decision and what you think works for your, for your work you know it's it's just like being a sculptor you just or being a painter you just have a different um way that you think best communicates your idea and often I wish it wasn't <laughs> <laughs> can you imagine a time where you don't appear in the work Rosie yeah, I mean, I've made quite a lot of work, which um, I don't appear in. But I think this is this idea of avatar. Like often, if I'm not physically in it, it's some kind of a version of myself. Yeah. I feel that with the things I'm talking about, it really it really is rooted in my own experience of the world and my body. And I really, really hope that there's some way in for other people to like see themselves reflected. But I just feel like it, talking about the issues I'm talking about, it's much more respectful to talk through a subjective position um but I hope it speaks broader than that <laughs> and you do occasionally invite people to collaborate or feature in your films for example or your performances how do you choose those people you collaborate with I've been quite lucky because quite a few students have wanted to come and do work experience with me and I've always then wanted to give them some like paid work or something at the end of it so I'll often work with those people um and they often come because they have kind of similar interest to me anyway so um I've often collaborated with uh, like Malika, for example, um, Malika Joy, who was in the, the new me film, worked with me in the studio for a few months and we developed relationships. So um, it was just through that. In terms of other collaborations, I mean, I do work with my my boyfriend, John, John Baker, quite a lot because he's an amazing photographer. And um, although I'm nearly always, uh, in fact, always kind of actually controlling what the image is going to look like, to have a technical person there is very um, helpful. Yeah. And do you, any of your collaborators influence the work in any way? <laughs> I'm so glad you're honest about that, Rosie. I love, do you know, for years, I've worked with so many performance artists who eventually come to terms with the fact that they're not really collaborating, they're directing. <laughs> you know what, it's funny because my background was in more like kind of post-traumatic theatre, which was very much like, well, sort of like complicity or... Um... What what's Tim Atchell, what's Tim Atchell's, um one called again? Oh yes, forced uh, entertainment. Forced entertainment, yeah, it's that that kind of vibe. Um, and I sort of slowly realised that, like, I just wanted to make all the decisions. <laughs> I think your universe that you build and that the world that you build in it has it's so it is so you and so recognisably you. I must say, for anyone who's listening to this, I really would encourage you to go and look at Rosie's work and um, just the extraordinary lengths you go to for all of the props that you make, like the giant tongue that you um, lie under, which I just, I love that piece, um, to the films, like everything is made and there's a, a real attention to detail. So even the stuff that looks kind of abject is kind of beautifully crafted and built so there's a there's a handmade quality to the world that you're building even when you're talking about the digital or um, the sort of technological realms that you spoke of there's always an analog or a kind of undoing of ourselves in a unraveling um, kind of way that really speaks to time and the labor that you've put into the work so I want, is it important that you make the props as well? I think that I, I develop them while making them. So it would, the process itself helps them become what they're going to be. But yeah, you're right. I do have a very specific aesthetic in the work, which I'm always, I'm always looking for kind of a fabricated fabric, <laughs> fabricated mm -hmm. um, <laughs> world <laughs> uh, more recently, especially. Um, but 
Yeah, I mean, I think that the the techniques I use, the kind of handmade element, it works for me because it has a kind of cute or kind of cartoonish look to it. And I like how that kind of undermines what, if it was not made of fabric, might be quite visceral or, or abject. It's kind of a contrast going on there. I mean, I think contrast in general is something I'm interested in, like how can we cross boundaries between, for example, like the mundane and the fetishistic or the, the cute and the, and the abject or the, the funny and the um, unsettling or scary, you know? Uh, so, yeah, choosing the, the medium I do with the props and stuff, I think it adds. There's a, certainly like a joyfulness to the making as well, but it, it adds, um, it makes it all exist within my, my world, I suppose. How long does it take you to uh, produce all of the props and the films, for example? Give you, could you give us an example of how, how long you might take to develop a work? And I know it varies, but just to give us an average. Um, depends how stressed I am with deadlines, but um, I would say we like for a big sculpture like three months or something mm-hmm. um for a film the films I made for the new me which is the corporation one I mentioned earlier I think that took about four months which was quite a short time actually because it was the first project I've done with a proper budget and I sort of didn't realize all of the people I was going to have to work with and the deadlines they weren't going to have the same deadlines as me mm-hmm. um but I mean I could talk about that project a bit if that would be yeah helpful. I think also curious about the learnings from that project Yes, I'm trying to think what my learnings were. Hmm. Well, to explain it, it was a basically it's a three screen video installation of its parts with three kind of short parody style adverts for imaginary products designed by my um, fictional corporation that I invented. And each product 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 has like a either a kind of pointless or very complicated use. Um, and I suppose I was thinking a lot about this idea of like optimization, optimizing the cell. And uh, kind of how our desire for commodities, the desire for our own um, increased efficiency. And I wanted to kind of parody that in some way. Um, and also reflect on different kinds of labor and how adverts respond to especially gendered types of labor. So just to quickly explain them this, so the three project products, I keep saying projects, products. Um, the first one is um, a cleaning outfit, which kind of looks like a muscle suit. So it makes you look kind of like you have pecs. Um, and a six pack but they're made out of J cloths um, and there's also a mask so the idea of that is you can kind of clean your house using your whole body so that becomes quite a kind of dirty visceral <laughs> experience and in the film I demonstrate it with some tomato soup so it's quite bloody um, so that was just one thing to obviously like ideas around cleanliness and how that's traditionally kind of stereotypically advertised towards women and then there's um, the toothbrushing machine which is like a sort of strange mouth made from a cutlery cleaner attached to a motor with a toothbrush on it so that you can brush the teeth of like a friend or a partner um, to both clean their teeth but also to increase intimacy so I was thinking about emotional labor Uh, and then the third one was a machine that kind of a wellness machine I suppose that makes you feel like a cat so there's these long plaits like mine that stroke from their face um, while you pedal on the legs um, and so it kind of gives you the impression of being stroked and at the stomach there's a machine that makes you feel like you're purring um and uh, that was kind of thinking about yeah this idea of like wellness um and the kind of pressures to be both as relaxed as you possibly can um but also <laughs> kind of using you must be relaxed but also use all of your time in the most the best way possible um and those three videos exist together they have a very specific um aesthetic that each of a different color each video has a mascot um which is a little cartoon animation because I was thinking about this idea of cuteness, how, how cuteness becomes the way that we kind of desire commodities to be both kind of the mother and the child of that object. So that was a project that was all about um, uh, basically how desire for commodities are constructed, how I felt about that. And through a kind of dystopian, um, but also DIY cobbled together uh, world that I built, I was thinking through it. Um, but in terms of what I learned, I mean, Building that corporation was really helpful to me because I can kind of continue to come back to that corporation and use it as a, um, a sort of mind space to be in to develop new things. And even if the audience doesn't know that it's the corporation designing it, it's almost like a headspace I can use for myself. I can step into it at any point. Um, and I think that's really, really helpful, especially when you're getting a bit het up and whether your ideas are good or not. You can just subcontract it to your imaginary CEO. <laughs> I like that. The board of yourself. Um, I think what 
struck me about those films, which I think are brilliant, and I was laughing because I was remembering watching them for the first time, and just um, whilst uh, the contraptions that you build are kind of perverse and um, sometimes made of like shonky materials or found objects, etc., the way you produce the films, they're exquisite and crisp in their the clarity of the vision of them. And because of that clarity and the colours that you've used, which kind of pop, so there's like a, a kind of pop colour to everything, um, it's a slightly hyper-real uh, version of a, I don't know, like a bonkers world that we do inhabit, but you've kind of upended it. But they're so compelling to watch. But when you're laughing, you're laughing at, Firstly, the the lengths that you've gone to to produce them and to put yourself in that position. The toothbrushing one I just absolutely loved. Um, but also the there is a kind of flirtation with danger, again, for me when I'm watching them because of that, uh, because there is some kind of self-harm in the culture that we inhabit. You know, there is that flirtation with, you know, it's not really doing us any good to um, participate in culture in this way. So there's a kind of joy and horror at, that exists at the same time, but the way you've produced them, they're so sublime and sensorial and sensational that you, you can't stop watching. So there's a kind of rubbernecker quality to your work, which I really like. Do you know, which is just like, I cannot believe she's just done that. Oh, my God, I have to keep watching. Do you know? And I really I love that. Um, and like you say, I know it's controlled, but the idea that everything could go tits up any minute mm. is a really brilliant frisson in the work that I really, I really respect. I think also there's and um, like I really liked it what you said there about there being some element of like a, maybe harm going on, but it's also simultaneously with the kind of joy that I have in the making of these contraptions which I think does come through as well yeah um, and I just really think Matt talks about the kind of cognitive dissonance that we we have in terms of the things that we desire that we know are kind of problematic um or that might harm us but there's there's still like a conditioned um uh under, understanding mm. like a we we can we can know both things at once yeah and I think that also comes through in like how it can be both humorous and disturbing at the same time I would I would hope but in terms of the the look I mean I think I also was I really like these kind of retro futurist mindsets like the idea of this how the future would look but made in the past I think a lot of my work keeps that going especially at the moment I'm kind of thinking more and more sci-fi but from a very kind of low tech way but do you know what I mean about that cognitive dissonance I don't know if I explained that yeah I do I think it it made me think as you were talking about um an artist who I really uh love uh, told me yesterday that they they've been struggling to come up with an idea for um, this museum show because they were exhausted because it was on the back of producing other solo shows and when they're exhausted just like the rest of us they tend to doom scroll and so they've been in this uh, kind of coming down off this big project but they've been like um, I just just surfing on the ridiculous apps etc and so they decided um which we talked about before to put their to get an app blocker to mm. block everything on their phone and within literally a couple of hours they went for a walk and they had the idea for the show mm. and the reason i share that is no surprise we all know but i think when you're talking about manifesting interesting useful things in the world which hell's teeth we all need right now you know we and we need people to be bringing positive things into the world to make us think differently so that we can behave differently and become uh, better versions of ourselves you know thank goodness but that just goes to show that all of us are susceptible to those things you know we're both compelled to immerse ourselves in them even though we know that it's chipping away at our best ideas, our best feelings, our best version of ourselves, and yet we we can't stop ourselves. So that idea that both technology and something that is useful makes us feel productive 
makes us feel like we're participating, yet actually is eroding us in other ways. So I think that's what I was thinking about, that kind of the sheer lunacy um, of that endeavour, if you like, that we've bought into, you know, wholeheartedly. So I think your work really helps us to reflect and think about that. But I think there's also something about the way you present yourself in the work where I don't know if if you've talked about this before, Rosie, but certainly I think the way you look and the way you present yourself, so the outfits that you choose to wear or the way you wear your hair or your face means that you are a great stooge for us. Do you know that actually uh, there's something where we can project onto you and we can be you or we can observe you as a, a human in a way where you are becoming that every every person. I don't know. It made me think of Jacques Tate. Do you know? Um, uh, of course. I'm a huge fan. Are you? Well, no, I, I actually curated a show called Traffic that was inspired by his film Traffic, all about um, artists making amazing work with cars anyway. Well, the, do you know, I did not know that. I should have known that. But, you know, so that I guess that sense of the absurdity in the everyday and that kind of and Jacques Tate was, a, was was also a kind of stooge, wasn't he, as a for all of us. So and there was something in the way that he looked that meant that we could relate, even though it was uh so I wonder if there's anything do you now you've been doing it so long, do you think very differently about the way you present I definitely divide how I normally am and how I am in the performances there is a slight character although I wouldn't be able to flesh it out very much um but I do think it has an element of customer service about it the way that I am in the performances and videos um and and also like I said earlier there's a kind of poise with which I do things which then becomes hopefully broken down during the process of getting all messy or whatever. But I think that that makes the um, the disruption or the, the messiness more astute is the fact that it's all very neat and regimented at the beginning. Um, and I often wear this dress, which looks kind of, it's, a, it's kind of part beautician, part nurse, part office wear dress. And I think there's something about those professions as well, which is slightly like fetishized, uh, professions as well that I'm kind of taking on where you're kind of there to, to serve in some way and I'm in labour as well so for that that's interesting to me like the, the sexualized element of that type of labour in terms of how it's seen um but you know it's been a tricky journey to, to, to see yourself from the outside of it like I was saying earlier and to think about like you know what does my face or my body like represent in society but you know it is relevant um because you know I'm like a young like um like white kind of traditionally slim I suppose figure and that is the kind of bodies through which often products are advertised traditionally and yeah. um, and and also it's also linked to a certain stereotypical idea of like femininity or sexuality which luckily now happily is changing I think um but that's something to kind of reconcile with and, and play with it's something that I don't really have control over mm. I have to be aware of also Yes. Yeah. yeah it's tricky because I don't want to pretend it's too conceptual because it's just my what I am as well. Yeah. You know. But yeah. But also, yeah. you, can't, you, know, you can't help how you how you <laughs> Yeah. So you graduated in 2018, as you said, from the Royal College of Art with your MA. What have you experienced in the art world that surprised you? So many things. Um. You know what? I'm going to say a positive thing. I'm actually I've actually been surprised by how like welcoming and and um communal it has been for me and I've enjoyed I've actually enjoyed making really enjoyed making friends through artworks and art the art world um because I do think we had <laughs> I hope that my my peers won't mind me saying this but I think we had quite a kind of us and them mentality on the MA which is like performance is like this pure kind of anti-capitalist thing in some way um and is very different from other mediums like painting. But actually, the more and more I've, I'm in it, the more I feel like we're all, it's all kind of quite, we're all kind of doing the same thing in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, but when I graduated, I didn't really have any idea of what like a professional life could even look like. I didn't really expect that it would even be possible. 
to like make money from the artwork so I was always had kind of other work I was doing at the same time so it's been a happy surprise that that that's been that that is possible for me although maybe that was me kind of not giving myself not having enough confidence at the time Um, how do you make work money from your artwork Rosie um, not that I make all my money at any, in any way from the artwork, but, you know, I have I have sold things and I have had commissions and, um, you know, exhibition fees have been all right recently. Um, but obviously I still have loads of other jobs. But um, uh, What other jobs do you do to support yourself? Well, I was working for ages in wardrobe, like um, undressing and stuff. Uh, then I worked for a long time at, at Tate as a, like working with kids and in the early years and family department. Um, and now I work at like three different universities. Teaching. Yeah. Yeah. And which champion? I didn't really answer your question. What's a better way? What's a better? Ask me again. What's what's you wanted to know? What I what was what I learned about the art world? Did you did you have a thing in mind? Well, I guess I think what you touched on really makes um, is something. I went to art art school uh, a long time ago, but uh, like you, I had no idea um, how I was going to sustain myself or. Um, whether back in those days nobody talked about selling work at all so I guess it's been even occurred to me it didn't even occur to me no and I I think that's uh that's a good thing in some ways but I think also um like you say I think there are amazing things about the arts which are you know much more open and experimental and generous and forgiving and um accepting and welcoming of difference which is one of the reasons that we all love it so much I think there were also some surprises certainly for me there were some surprises in that I didn't realize um how much wealth there might be (laughs) in the art world that um that artists don't see very often you know or it doesn't come to them very often I was also um thinking about you know the structures that of whether it's institutions or commercial galleries or there are many, many different art worlds within the art world, aren't mm. there? And so I think I was curious as, you know, you graduated relatively recently, you know, just in that time, you've done a lot of different kinds of shows and performances and you've worked with lots of different kinds of collaborators. You touched on it briefly about knowing what conditions you need now to do your work. So I'm curious as to what do you ask for? What do you need in order to do your best work? I have to only have the blue M&M. Um, <laughs> Is that your rider? My rider. Um, yes, I, I didn't realise for ages that, you know, you, you don't have to change in the loo. You can ask for a little bit of changing room. It's fine. Um, I, it's not like I'm a diva, but yeah, like I, I, I'd like someone who will like hold my keys in my bag when I do the performance, for example. Someone who will like look out for me and who knows what my boundaries are in case something goes wrong which usually I would say are quite it takes quite a long time before I'd want someone to intervene but it's good to have that discussion um also a, a fee yeah <laughs> fees are good a fee um especially especially if it's in a commercial space um but ideally everywhere and also yeah for it not to be freezing cold <laughs> but that that's the not always possible I understand that right and so what yeah, been telling I've always thought maybe it was good to like write a little list because I just really think that when when you first graduate maybe maybe people are more savvy now but I just didn't really I was so like willing it's just maybe my personality as well just like really willing to please and like wanting to make everything as easy as possible that I made life harder for myself when it didn't need to be I think ah yes a lot of a lot of galleries they don't they don't really put on performances that often so they don't really they're not doing it on purpose they just don't know yeah I think having um, that idea of a rider, although we were sort of jesting, I know I work with a lot of neurodivergent artists who um, have started um, being much clearer about the conditions that they need in order to do their best work. And so having a, um, a document that you share with people in advance so that you're educating, but also um, helping you all to work together better I think is is not such a bad idea because you're absolutely right the nuances that are involved in creativity and staging a performance um, the slightest thing could make a massive difference so I think it's really fantastic that you're much more aware of those but also that you've built the confidence to ask and know that it's your right to ask I'm also a recovering people pleaser so (laughs) I totally appreciate and hear you. But 
I'm curious, what have you needed to get better at, Rosie, in order to sustain your creative career? Conflict. Con- managing conflict. Interesting. Yes. I mean, I think being an artist, you're already avoiding conflict because you're often alone. Mm, interesting. And you can make all the decisions yourself, mostly. But often it's better to be upfront earlier on than to wait for something to get to the point where you have to make it an issue. And I think I struggled with that. Not it could be in terms of anything like what you need for an exhibition or um, how you need something to go or anything. Uh, so being upfront at the beginning about what you expect from a project and what you um, what you need, I think, has taken me a while to learn. <laughs> and also mm-hmm. to to say no if something doesn't feel right, but not to feel like that's a personal attack on somebody, you know, because do- just because you don't want to do someone's show doesn't mean that you don't respect them. Lots of other things going on. Yes. Have you um, learned from any tools such as podcasts or books, or how have you helped yourself get better at dealing with conflict? I've just grown older. Practice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that just committing to what you love and figuring and it out. I've also just got a little bit more um, like res- respect for my place, I suppose, in terms of like, you know, I. It's difficult being an artist. I think maybe you've even said this on one of the podcasts before. Being an artist, it's like you you're, you both have to have like an obscene amount of self confidence, but also a huge amount of self kind of vulnerability and um and and kind of anxiety. I, I feel like it's a balance of those two. Yeah. Um, but when you're out in the world and you're trying to make opportunities for yourself, you do have to lean towards the confident side and kind of back yourself, give yourself the um the benefit of the doubt that you deserve to be in those places. You know. Yeah, I love that. I think you really do. um, That becomes really clear when you look at your work and watch the performances in particular. I think there's a a sense that you're backing the thing that you're making and you're caring less about yourself in that moment, but you're committed 100% to making the work come true. Yeah, because I think also because my work is quite... um... Like some people could think of it as because it as like silly or maybe it has something like a trivial element, which I don't think at all. You have to be incredibly um, like serious in the way that you the, the way that you conceptualize it, and and you know because because sometimes humor is sort of looked down on uh, as not being a proper art about like the human nature of our souls, but I think it really is because I think the absurd is really how we exist in the world that's my opinion anyway yeah if you could change something in the arts what would it be I guess I I would want it to be easier for all different kinds of people to become artists um I mean there's a whole whole load of different ways that 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 would need that a lot of changes that would have to happen for that to be for it to be more accessible especially for like working class people I think but also all different kinds of people um I mean I I feel like free education would be a good start <laughs> um because I my experience of working in the art schools is that it is very most people are quite privileged now who are studying especially the masters um not everybody but there needs to be like more access points and people need to be able to see that it is a viable career as well mm-hmm. so I suppose I mean I don't know I don't have all the answers but <laughs> What words of encouragement would you give to somebody who wanted to be an artist? I would say that you don't have to um, imagine yourself as like Van Gogh uh, with this, you know, you can have a, with this very like uh, singular life, which is dedicated to art. You can do lots of different things and still be an artist and you can make things work doing uh, all different types of jobs, all different types of projects. There's there's all sorts of different ways to be an artist. And um, as long as you're doing like, one day a month you're already an artist you know what I mean um so you can be practical about it I suppose yeah that's great Rosie thank you so much that's also not very optimistic though also I guess I would just say uh it's really fun making artwork yeah I think that's great a bit of practical advice but also I think that fun is really huge because actually enjoying your life is a really worthwhile pursuit and so making work and 
uh, committing to a fun, creative life, I think, is why we're all here. So it's brilliant to hear your journey and what's important to you, Rosie. So keep being brilliantly bonkers, doing what you love, and but also really making us think about some of those things in the world that we know seriously need addressing. And uh, I think it's, although you don't think of yourself as being particularly brave, I think it is brave to commit so wholeheartedly to doing what you love um, unabashedly. And so uh, please keep doing it. Thanks so uh -huh. much for joining us. Thanks, Kerry. I love that Rosie is so committed to her work, to seeing it through and doing whatever it takes to complete her vision. There is a system and logic to the absurd universes that she creates, and there is deep, rigorous consideration about every single element of the unique, twisted worlds that she builds. I have a deep appreciation for her work and process, because I know how hard it is to craft work that teeters on the knife edge of being challenging, funny, and aesthetically curious, seductive, and demanding. I'm 100% with her that I think humour and the absurd are useful tools for debunking and challenging the status quo and inviting us all to reconsider the power systems and structures we operate within. Please follow and share the podcast. It helps us to support more brilliant creatives like you. Recommend future guest suggestions in your reviews. They might well become part of our show. Thanks for being part of our creative community. Until next time. Thank you.